right. Uh, we uh, a couple of weeks ago we talked about um, church, about us all, and then last week we talked about elders and focused on their ministry. We haven't really talked so much about God yet, in a way. Uh, so uh, that's what we're going to do tonight. So welcome to everyone. Uh, if you haven't been to Seoul before, as I know some sort of uh, beautiful Queenslanders in there haven't, welcome to you guys uh, and other people who I may not know. I still don't know who's new yet because first of all, you've got masks on. I can't tell who's who. But secondly, also, I'm still getting to know everyone. So if you, are, if you haven't met me before, please come and talk to me. Tell me your name. I'd love to get to know you. Uh, and if, it is, if you are new or newish here, a big, big welcome from me to you. Um, let's get into Psalm 50. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Buckingham Palace had a security scare. Uh, two official palace guards are put on high alert when they notice a man that they don't recognise walking through the palace gardens. And the, uh, the guards fly into action. And challenging the man... I'm just gonna, I think I need to raise this. Does that work? No? How do you do it? Is this how it works, Stephen? You haven't screwed at the bottom. Ah, oh, that's the thing. Genius. Go do that and that. That's why I pay you the big bucks, Benjamin. All right. Wow, that's very high. That's cool. I'll deal. <laughs> anyway, so they're, they're there. These guys, they fly into action. They challenge the man and they hold him there at gunpoint. Now, as the man responds to their request to identify himself, the guards' faces turn the same shade of red as their famous uniform as the unfamiliar man identifies himself as His Royal Highness Prince Andrew, fourth in line to the throne. Sometimes misunderstandings happen and you throw yourself into something, you think you're doing everything right, but then it gets awkward because you made a misunderstanding like it did for some members of the Swansea Council who were in the process of making all their street signs bilingual. Right? Now to do this, they needed to email the English words to their translation department who would then send back an email with the appropriate Welsh translation and then they'd put the Welsh translation on the sign below the English one. Now I checked with David Jones this afternoon and he has confirmed to me that the lower half of this heavy vehicle warning sign reads in perfect Welsh, sorry I'm out of the office at the moment. <laughs> they sent the email, that's what they got back, that's what they put on the sign. See, misunderstandings can involve public humiliation, but sometimes there's a little more on the line than just looking silly to the Welsh people. You see, in 1983, Air Canada Flight 143 left Montreal, headed for Edmonton. Flight 143 was one of the new uh, 767s, which were the first Air Canada aircraft to have switched to metric units instead of the old Imperial ones. And so instead of 22,000 kilos of fuel, they only had 22,000 pounds, which is much less. The plane ran out of fuel roughly halfway to its destination at an altitude of 41,000 feet, or 12,000 meters. The crew amazingly managed to glide the plane safely to an emergency landing. Now, misunderstandings can have serious consequences depending on the misunderstanding. Now, we're looking at Psalm 50 this afternoon, and here God <coughs> clears his throat and says to his people Israel, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Because that might have some consequences for you. It's important that we get each other. Now, uh, I'd love you to have your Bible open. I'd love you to be looking at this psalm. It's in understandable sections and it really will be beautiful if you can sort of get the first little God clearing his throat, one to six. God speaking to his, the, the faithful people of his in verses seven to 15 but then to the wicked in 16 to 21 
and then a little appeal just at the end. It's, it's, a, it's a great psalm. Now, have a look at the first few verses with me, because we'll see God about to speak. You see there, it says, The Mighty One, God the Lord, summons and speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. It's not just God speaking. It's not just the Mighty One speaking. It's not just the Lord speaking. It's as if God uses uh, the psalmist, sorry, as if the psalmist uses God's full name, rank, and title. God, the ruler of gods, the great I am, that's who's speaking. Then to emphasize the point, the location of the speech matches the impressiveness of the title. I'm speaking from my holy mountain in Jerusalem, Zion, raging bushfire. Wasn't on Mount Nelson, bigger than that. God clears his throat and as he expects everyone from heaven above down to the earth below to listen up. Now, the, the setting for this psalm is around 1000 BC. And in that time, God addresses his people of that time, the nation Israel. And he calls to himself two groups of people, the faithful and the wicked, the people who keep the agreement that God made with Israel and the people who ignore it. Okay? First, speaking of the faithful, there is two addressees. Faithful first. Now, these people are ancient Israelite model citizens. They are regular at church. Uh, they don't break the commandments. They're, they're, they're sitting pretty. And God says to them, look, it's not because of all the godly things that you do that I'm going to rebuke you. I'm rebuking you because when you do those things, you think you're doing me a favor. You're not on trial for being God-fearing men and women who go to church and serve, but, you're, but because you're starting to think that I need you to do it. You see where God's coming from. People are bringing sacrifices all the time. It's not as if the temple's empty. I mean, in modern terms, this is when church is full, growth groups are a roaring success, planning new congregations each week. Verse 8, your burnt offerings are continually before me. People are going to prayer meetings and they're liking it. It's good. And yet we get to verse 9 and all this great service of God seems to be a little bit unappreciated. I won't accept a bull from your house or a goat from your folds. It almost seems a bit churlish from God. What, why? Well, look, when Fiotti was about two or three, um, I remember he asked me a question one day. And uh, I didn't quite catch every word of it, right? But the words that I did hear were, Daddy, where do come from? And I missed the thing in the middle. And I was just preparing myself to have a deep conversation and start talking about the copulatory process, like that bloke from the car ad, you know the one? Uh, until, until he asked me again, where do penguins come from, right? And I was like, ah, oh, that's much more fun. Uh, See, the people who lived around Israel, they had a story that they would tell their kids about where humans come from. All the Canaanite nations, the Babylonians, the, the Egyptians. And this story went that it was because their gods were hungry and were too lazy to get food for themselves. So, so what do you do? Well, you make a bunch of humans to be your personal waiters and bring you food, which is what they think they're doing when they bring their sacrifices. And so in, in their version of the flood story, because all these nations around have got flood stories, in this version, the Babylonian version, after 40 days and 40 nights, the gods are getting hungry and they're getting very annoyed at the god who flooded the world because they're not getting any tucker. And so at the end, when Noah sacrifices an animal after he gets off the boat, that's what this, is, this picture is, is, is um, uh, representing, the story says that the gods swarmed around it like flies. All the gods are like, like seagulls on a chip, right? So in the ancient pagan world, the role of human religion is to meet the needs of the gods, to offer them sacrifices, and if you do it well, well, the gods might treat you well in return, but, but they need you to prop them up. But if you have a look at verse 12, here, Yahweh gods speak. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. 
if it could possibly be that I would get hungry and have needs, what makes me think I'd go to you to sort things out for me? You think I have needs? And you think you could fulfill them? The, the problem with the faithful ones in Israel is that they've misunderstood their God. He's not a needy pagan God. So even though they're doing all these good religious things, which are great, they've started to think that God needs them to do them, which is ridiculous. As they go about their excellent, godly things. God's reply is, I don't need you. That's not how things work with me. This relationship only works when you rely on me, when you rely on me to give you food, not, not, not the other way around. I'm your hope of a better future when things look bleak. You're not my only hope to save the world. You're not the one who's going to turn everything around when it looks like church isn't going so well. You need me, says God, to make sure that the bank balance stays in the black and I don't need your giving each week to keep me afloat. Every animal on the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I'm not short on cash, guys. I know every burden in the mountains and the insects in the field are mine. There's nothing that you can give God because it's already his. Now, that's to the, to, to, the, to the good guys. Now, God turns his attention to the Israelites whose life looks a lot less religious. Now, these are God's people, but they have rejected his word. And so through verses 18 to 20, God describes their lives in full sinful detail. When you guys see a thief, you join in with him. You throw in your lot with adulterers. Hey, hey, yeah, you're cheating on your wife. Cool, yeah, yeah. You use your mouth for evil and you harness your tongue to deceit. You sit and testify against your brother and slander your own mother's son. It's quite a, it's quite a damning list. It's like a list of a symptoms of a disease, lies, encouraging theft, adultery, gossip. And God's critique of the wicked Israelites is different to his critique of the faithful Israelites in an interesting way. God's problem with the faithful, faithful was how they treated God, but these aren't so much about how they treat God, but how they treat other people. But if you cast your eye down to verse 21, it becomes clear that even if the symptoms are different, so both the, the, the people who are doing lots of religious things and the people who aren't, symptoms are different. But the cause of the problem is the same. The wicked also misunderstand God. You see, God says to the wicked, your problem is you think I'm like you. You think I'm happy to tolerate evil. But you've got me all wrong. I'm actually going to judge evildoers. The wicked see someone taking what's not theirs and they do nothing to stop it. In fact, they join in the looting. Uh, they know someone who's cheating on their spouse, they take the adulterer's side. And so when they've been behaving like this for years and you don't get hit by a lightning bolt from the sky, does God, well, I mean, does God really care? So used to it by now, it's so normal and he's, he hasn't done anything about it. Maybe God's like me. He's done nothing to stop it getting away with it after all cheated on my tax last week I didn't get caught in fact I've been doing it for years and nothing bad's happened it's probably fine in fact actually now think about it that's fine why, not, why stop a tax might cheat on my wife as well but in Psalm 50 God says to the wicked Israelites what were you thinking it's, it's kind of natural I know but the only way you could possibly think that I'm okay with this is if you have completely thrown away all my laws if you've completely forgotten all the things that I've told you about myself before. That's, that's what he says in verse 17. They, they've misunderstood my patience in not punishing them and presumed he gives them permission. 
Uh, I've got a friend, uh, I can probably tell you his name because he's not in, not in this not in this state. Um, uh, he, he lives in, I won't though. He, he, he's a senior HR consultant though, right? So his job is hiring and firing people. That's, that's what he does. And he's a Christian and he's well known for being a Christian in this role. And so people like him because they think he's really nice. And they expect him to be nice and they expect him to be kind. And one day there was this guy who had committed a, um, a, a fairly gross sort of count of malpractice. Uh, and uh, he had previously, you know, had good interactions with my friend before. And he walked into the office and he was really relaxed and, and, and kind of chatty and smiley. And my friend just looked at him and said, mate, you think because I'm a Christian that everything's going to be good for you with you having done this? You don't know who you're dealing with. Security escorted him from the building. This is what's happening here. This psalm, written in 1000 BC, God's message to the wicked Israelites is, you better watch out, because if you deliberately forget me and my words, then who's going to rescue you when I judge you? Who's going to be the better to rescue you if I'm going to be your judge? You don't know who you're dealing with. I will judge evil. All right. Fast forward 1,000 years from this psalm to 52 AD after Jesus. So from the purple crown of David's kingdom through to world mission, Jesus has lived now. He has died for sin. He has risen again to conquer death and he has ascended to the Father and God now speaks again. Acts 17. His messenger to the nations, the apostle Paul, visits Athens, the, the cultural center of the ancient world. He visits the intellectual pinnacle of the intellectual pinnacle, the Areopagus. Don't know if you've been there, um, but, but he, he's there, he's going around Athens, he's preparing to talk to the philosophers in the Areopagus. That's where all the, the intellect happens. It's, that's the, you know, the marble halls of power. And he's quite troubled because it's a city that so obviously misunderstood God very deeply. The people there are very spiritual. They follow hundreds of different gods. I mean, they're so lost in trying to find their God that they've even got uh, a temple to the unknown God just in case they missed one. And in his address, he follows the same pattern here as Psalm 50 does. He starts by reminding us that God doesn't need people. People need God. So he says in verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God doesn't need us, we need him. See, the thing is, I'm a pastor, so I'm going to be the worst at this, right? This is going to be a kick in the butt for me. God doesn't need our ministry to bring about his plans. He doesn't need my ministry to bring about his plans. He doesn't need our singing or our praise to feel fulfilled and happy. Like he's sort of, you know, a little bit depressed and sad until, you know, maybe coming Saturday starting to get bad. But on a Saturday, at least the SDAs do. And then, then Sundays, then I get a big budget and I feel better again. Father, Son and Holy Spirit were perfectly joyful for eternity before the creation of the world with no humans in sight. In perfect unity and community and love. Now, are you ever tempted to think that God needs you? God's lucky to have you. Or maybe just there's a little bit in your heart that you'd like to think you're contributing something to him that he doesn't already have. See, when we're doing that, we're in our minds making the God of the Bible a pagan God. 
Maybe, maybe for you, it's been, there's been a ministry that you do, something you've always done at church, um, because you feel like there's no one else who can do it like you can. And if you left it, it would all fall in a heap. Where would God be then? Or maybe you do it the negative way. Maybe you beat yourself up over how you didn't serve people so well as you should have. And oh, that person's not, that evangelistic conversation, oh gee, I stuffed that up at work and now I beat myself up over it because that person's never going to get saved now because I just didn't come up with that cool quote. If only I'd remembered that great thing Tim Keller said sometime or something, you know, in the right moment. God, it's not how it works. It's God who changes hearts. So if you are burdened by trying to follow God, exhausted, in his service because he needs you just stop and take a breath a breath that God consistently breath after breath gives you and you only have because he keeps giving it to you because he loves you God has made everything okay now look I'm not saying God doesn't use us I'm not saying God doesn't use your ministry. I'm not saying it's useless. I'm not saying that he doesn't allow us graciously to partner with him in his work of redeeming the world to himself. He does, but it's not because he needs us. It's a privilege. He grants us as a gift. It's like, like, a, it's like when you're a parent and your toddler goes, oh, can I help you cook, daddy? And you're like, yes, because that's awesome. Not because, yes, you desperately need your two-year-old to cut the carrots for you. Yes, because it's so good to do it with them, right? And this is God with us in ministry. Yeah, I do love it when you cut the cows, Raph. Now, as Paul continues, he's teaching the great philosophers of the world. And his second announcement in, this, in his talk to them, just like it was in Psalm 50, is that he's not going to let evil go on forever. He has appointed a day when the judgment will happen. And he's appointed a judge who will judge justly. Even though it looks for all the world like God's just letting people get away with evil, even though as we look around our world, it might seem like God doesn't mind evil that much because otherwise, why would he let so much of it go on? He wants to make things clear in case we misunderstand him because we don't want to misunderstand God. That would have consequences. Have a look at verse 30. Um, yeah, it should be on the screen for us, 30 and 31 of, um, of Acts 17. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance... So it's okay, he gets it. But now he commands all people everywhere, not just Israelites, to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Don't misunderstand me, says God. Don't mistake the fact that, I, yes, I have overlooked your sin for the idea that I accept your sin or that I won't judge it. God's not like us. He doesn't tolerate evil. Like, uh, this is one of the hardest things for me in my faith, and I get this wrong. The horrible injustices in the world that I see break my heart, and I think that they hurt, they grieve, and I somehow think that they grieve the heart of God less than they grieve mine. No, the, the things that break your heart and the injustices and the evils that you see that you think need dealing with grieve the heart of God infinitely more than they do ours. And God will bring recompense for the things that we read in the paper that just make us cry. God will bring justice for sin. He wants to, us not to misunderstand him. I guess the hard part, though, is it's not only the sin we see out there, but also the sin we see in here. See, Psalm 50 was a warning for Israel, uh, anticipating God's warning to us all, uh, which is why this announcement in Acts 17 is actually so good. 
And it's it's actually the the, the end and the middle of, of Psalm 50 as well. The, it's it's like Psalm 50 was just banging around in in um, Paul's head as as he preached in in Acts 17. God has set a day when He'll judge, but it is not this day. God's God's patience will have a limit, but but it hasn't run out yet. We're now in the amnesty. God is commanding all people everywhere to turn to Him and away from evil. He has done it all for us. He says, uh, Psalm, 50 verse, uh, Psalm 50 verse 15, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I'll deliver you. I'll deliver you. And in Acts 17, we're called, upon, we're, we're called to call upon him, to ask for the forgiveness that he's so freely offering. He has done it all to make it okay for us. So, what do you give the God who owns everything and who doesn't even need you to make up for your own sin, but he has made it up for it for you? Where do you get the person who's got everything? You give him this. Thank you. Thank you. That's what he wants. A sacrifice of thanksgiving. Verse 23 of Psalm 50. Humble, dependent thanks. Thanks, thanking him for even saving us from our own messed up ideas about him needing us. See, what really honors God is not your ministry. It's when we're thankful to him for his ministry. To us. And the way we honour God is not by doing amazing things for him, but by pointing people to the amazing things that he has done for us. When Jesus died on a cross for us, forgave our sin and rose to life again. That's how we honour God. Uh, verse 14 of Psalm 50. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I'll deliver you and you will glorify me. How's your thankfulness? I've got to tell you, mine could use some upping. I owe him everything, a thousand times over. But some, some day, the day-to-day -day just makes me feel like it's up to me. But it's not. This isn't true. Psalm 50, God doesn't need us, and God will judge sin. So as we talk, as we talk to God this week, as, as we talk to God now in prayer, let's make sure we know who we're dealing with. Don't misunderstand God and be thankful. Let's pray. Let's talk to him. God, it is both an incredibly humbling thing to talk to, to you who own the cattle on a thousand hills, who, who owns every bird in this, on this planet and every inch of this universe. It, it's, a, it's, it's a thing to do that right to, to, to honour you with what you deserve Father you are so good you are so huge you deserve all the honour because you are the owner and the creator and, and above all things in heaven and earth our, our, our start of our address to you should be nothing other than the, than the highest of recognitions of how big and good you are Father help us and save us from misunderstanding you and thank you that you've promised that you will save us from that Father, keep us from sin, for we, we, hear you, we hear you correcting us here that sin is more serious than we think it to be and that you will judge it and you will not tolerate it. So, Father, please help us to root it out of our lives. But, Father, help us to go to your Son, Jesus, for the power to do that and help us to go to him for the forgiveness that we need. Father, we just want to praise you for him. We're about to have a Lord's Supper, and when we have that, Father, please turn our hearts to joy and thankfulness so that as we do we offer a sacrifice of praise 
to Jesus for how great he is, how good he's been to us, and for how you give us everything that we need, life and breath and everything else. You've been so good. Thank you. Amen.